I'd like to continue and elaborate a little more on the way that meditation automatically reduces our hindrances and helps us to have a different reaction system within us. Now, in order to remember the hindrances better, I'll just enumerate them, five of them. It starts out with sensual desire. The second one is ill will. The third one, sloth and torpor. The fourth one is restlessness and worry. And the fifth one, skeptical doubt. I've already told you about number three, five, and two. The third one, sloth and torpor. I told you that every time you put your attention on the meditation subject, it's an automatic antidote. And I told you that sloth and torpor is compared to being in prison. It's a mind that can't get going. Then the last one, the skeptical doubt one, reduces very markedly when the mind can actually stay on the meditation subject. Actually, the people who are eventually real practitioners and really find their way on the spiritual path are only those that can keep their mind on this meditation subject. It's got to be that. As long as there's that constant coming and going of the mind, the mind throws up all sorts of ideas. And these ideas are totally detrimental to practice. So it's not so difficult to become a real practitioner one that is committed and devoted. The commitment is in the mind, devotion is in the heart. It's nothing other than the second step of keeping the mind on the meditation subject. Once that happens, so many of those initial questions just disappear. Because what's there to ask about when there's nothing to think about? So that's the second one. And the third one, the ill will one, the one, you know, hate, resentment, dislike, resistance, blaming others, blaming oneself, blaming the whole world, being upset and all the rest of it, all that gets markedly reduced when we finally take that step across the threshold. And again, I'll repeat, without taking that step across the threshold, the ill will will always be a great difficulty. These five hindrances are human nature. Don't make any mistake about it. People do. It's a wonderful fantasy, particularly in America. I've got so many problems, I need a therapist. Five hindrances, human nature. Everybody's got them, including the therapist. That's probably why the chemotherapist or she, because they know that they've got them. But this is human nature, and we are saddled with it. But we've got all the antidotes within us 
and nobody outside of us can do anything about those antidotes if we do not bring them to bear upon our hindrances. Actually, it can be helpful to uh, talk about one's difficulties with a therapist, but one must not expect that that's going to take care of the hindrances. That one has to do oneself. So this next step is coming across the threshold. That's when there is absolutely no ill will during meditation and the residual effect in everyday life because the mind has found its home. Just as the body always has had a home where it is in comfort, where it can sit nicely in an easy chair, where it can sleep on a good bed, where it's got a kitchen to feed itself, where it's got a bathroom to clean itself, where it doesn't have to worry about thieves coming in if the door is well locked. In the same uh, manner, the mind has now finally found the place where it can relax. And no thief comes in to take away that peace until the concentration wavers again. And that is then one of the five hindrances coming back in. I've explained that aspect of it yesterday. I'm repeating it to give you a better connection to it because I know that except those of you who've been with me before, you haven't really had that kind of insight into the aspect of calm and insight. We've got two more hindrances and we've got two more factors of meditation. We're well equipped to do something about ourselves except most people don't know about this. It's widely available, but like all these things that are of so tremendous impact and importance, it doesn't get talked about a lot. So, together with the very enchanting and delightful sensation, joy arises. What else? I mean, you can't be sad about having delightful sensations. It's not possible. Now, joy is of different qualities, and I'd like to give a bit of an introduction to you about the different kinds of joy there are. There is a kind of joy that we <coughs> actually call joy, but which is pleasure. It comes through our senses. It tastes good, it looks good, it sounds good, it's a nice touch sensation, and so on. We're not concerned with that. The sense contacts are not what are going to give us the inner realization. In fact, what they do is, they're thieves. They take away our time and our understanding of what we ought to be doing because they're constantly at work. So the joy I'm talking about is a different one. There's first a kind of worldly joy, which I've mentioned before, but I like to put it into context again. The joy of practice. The joy of being able to be here and practice and realizing that there's nothing more important to do in one's whole life. That brings enormous joy. Knowing that this is really the epitome of what a human being can do in a human life. 
That kind of joy arises out of a particular cause. And the cause for that is that one has actually seen Dukkha. I'm going to talk about Dukkha tomorrow, not tonight, not probably tonight. So that kind of joy is a joy I was also recommending to you, the gladdening of the mind at the beginning of each meditation, realizing how wonderful it is to be able to do this. It can be mild or strong. The more we recognize Dukkha, the stronger it becomes. That's a worldly joy, and it is essential to have that in order to meditate. It's a prerequisite for meditation. But then there's meditative joy. And the first one in Pali has a different name to it than the second one. The first one is called Bamoja and the second one is called Sukha. But we only have joy as our word in English because pleasure is the wrong word and happiness is also not exactly right. So we'll just say the first one is a more mind-produced joy because we know what we're doing. And the second one is a meditation-produced joy. Now, that's automatic, of course. How can one not have that arising? It's the one that's called Sukha, the opposite of Dukkha. How can we not have that when there is this complete bathing in a wonderful feeling, which removes the bodily heaviness, the bodily pains, for the time of the meditation, which takes one out of this feeling of being connected with difficulties. There's none of that left. It's totally gone. So obviously joy arises simultaneously. Now, at the time of the very first step into this uh, mansion, one's attention is on the delightful sensation because it's overriding. But having been able to stay on that for a good length of time, the mind realizes, of course, any intelligent mind realizes, I didn't start meditating to get delightful sensations. That's not my reason for sitting here. So, I will now let go of that delightful sensation. And this is a deliberate thought in the mind. This is the way the Buddha taught it. Maybe I should say at this point, I am not um, genius enough to think this up by myself. These are all the Buddha's teachings, which I'm only interpreting for you in the way that our modern language uh, allows us to do. So the Buddha said a deliberate understanding that this is very nice but it's still gross. It's still on the level of a physical thing although the body has changed its ambience totally. So I'm going to let go of that and go to something which is far more subtle which is an emotional feeling and at that time that is joy. And that is something that the mind is attracted to, of course. It's attracted to joy. So it has no difficulty going to that second step. And at that time, 
we lose the first two factors. The initial application to the meditation subject is no longer necessary because we're in there meditating. And that is the time when we're meditating. Everything else is trying. And we do not need the sustained application because that's obvious that we've got it. So the first two are gone. And now we are concerned with only being attentive to the joy. The very pleasant sensation of well-being, of having no heaviness. Actually, the sense of the earth element is gone at that time. The earth element, which is uh, actually, while it is our nature, not so pleasant. It's the one that gives us all the aches and pains, the earth element. So at that time, the earth element is gone. The pleasant sensations are in the background. So piti, which is the Pali word for that, is in the background of the attention. And in the foreground of the attention is the joy. So we have changed over from being attentive to our physical well-being, which is, of course, mental also. You can't divide the two, really, to an emotional state, which is a little more subtle. Emotions a little more subtle than just knowing that one feels wonderful. And this joy is the automatic antidote for our restlessness and worry, the four hindrance. Now, the restlessness and worry, the four hindrance, is um, described by the Buddha as being a slave or a servant, being pushed around not being in charge at all. If we're restless, we're being pushed around by the restlessness. We've got to go here, we've got to go there. The mind goes from this thing to the next thing. The body moves accordingly. Restlessness is a human condition until full enlightenment. So you can imagine how much of it there is. In fact, you don't need to imagine. Just look on the freeways or at any airport, Los Angeles International Airport, where I landed. The less thought about it, the better. <laughs> Everybody goes from here to there. Sometimes, I m you might have even wondered, I often do, where is everybody going? <laughs> well, they think they're going somewhere. It's our inherent restlessness. And why do we have it? Because we haven't found fulfillment within ourselves. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. You ever watched any cows eat grass? They're always putting their snoots through the fence. We've got cows all around Buddha House in Germany. They're always putting their, their uh, mouth through the fence to eat our grass. It's exactly the same grass as their grass. <laughs> and we are no different. We haven't found fulfillment. So not having found fulfillment, of course, we're going somewhere to find it. Like, for instance, living in the city and thinking must be much better living in the country, growing one's own carrots. And then having grown the carrots long enough, one thinks, oh, it's very inconvenient here in the country. It's better to live in the city and go back to the city. And then having gone back to the city, it's not so good in California. We better go to New Mexico and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. 
sometimes, of course, there are valid reasons. But it's not only the physical movement that depicts our restlessness. The restlessness is depicted in the mind, in particularly in our discursive thinking. We haven't got anything to rest upon in here. If we have that, when once we get that, that we can rest upon within, well, we don't have to go anywhere with the mind. We know exactly where we all want to rest. It's exactly like when you come home and you're tired. Well, you know you can lie down on your bed. You don't have to go all through the house trying to figure out where you're going to put yourself down. The bed, that's where you're going to rest. It doesn't mean falling asleep in meditation. So this restlessness, <coughs> described as being a slave, being pushed around, not actually having this solid understanding what it is in here that gives us the peacefulness and the joy, not really knowing what is the most important thing to do with one's life. This is another aspect of restlessness, not having a clear-cut direction and having it following it, not going here and there thinking, well, you know, this is important too, and this is nice too, and these people are also very interesting, but a clear-cut direction. <coughs> Worry is that kind of thinking that is fearful about the past omissions and commissions and the future happenings. The mind that worries is concerned with itself, the me, what's going to happen to me. Because, it, again, it hasn't found that place where it feels totally at home. Mind hasn't got a home until it has finally entered into the inner chambers. And therefore, it occupies itself with all these outer things, which keep the economy running, of course. The more we buy, the better the economy goes. So all these things, these outer things, these things keep the mind occupied because it hasn't found anything within where it can really be at ease. <coughs> the inner joy that arises and that we can then keep as our second step, second chamber in our inner mansion, counteracts all that naturally during the meditation. But it counteracts it, of course, also with the, with the visual effect because now we experience what we have always looked for. We didn't know that we were looking for that. We were looking for the nice things in life, and we were enjoined to do so. They've been telling us ever since we came around, it's the nice things in life. You can get them. They're available. It's a free country. You can have them. All you have to do is work for them a bit, and you'll get them. And uh, that hasn't changed in, in the last hundred years, that kind of uh, thinking process. It's only become a little more difficult to get them. That's all. And so we thought that if we get them, and all of us have got at least some of them, that's going to be it. And then comes the rub when we finally see that isn't it. There's a mistake somewhere. Now, some people think the mistake is in them. They haven't looked for the right things. They didn't go after the right things. They have to try over again. So they change their profession. They change their husbands or wives. They change their uh, abode. They didn't do it the right way. That's one idea. The other idea that people get, of course, is that somebody told them wrong and that they weren't uh, 
uh, told right, so they're looking for somebody else to tell them what they should be looking for. But that isn't it at all. That when we realize that getting all the nice things isn't at all what is going to do it for us, then comes the moment when we start looking for spiritual practice. And when we come to this point in the spiritual practice, and again I'd like to repeat, anyone, everyone can do it. It's a matter of giving oneself to it completely. Wholehearted commitment. Wholehearted giving. Those that have a lot of loving kindness can do it easier. Everyone can do it. Sometimes it's a karmic resultant, why people can do it quickly. There are people who have take a long time to do it, but everyone can do it. Once we get into that second chamber, where this joy arises, we realize with a startling and very impactful moment of recognition, this is what I was looking for. It's right in here. Why was I looking out there? It's here. And then, of course, one is hooked then one's going to practice. Practice to the end. Because while you still can get the joy in meditative uh, process, one still gets worried and restless. One still gets irritated and upset. And yet, that person who has done that knows it's not really necessary. I've got to practice more. And that is one of the most important insight insights arising through this uh, meditative um, result, that while the result is enormous, it still doesn't transform one completely. And there, then, the practice is really important. So these um, meditative absorptions are not just sitting there enjoying it, although they are that too. The joy as a counter, as an antidote for restlessness and worry, then has, of course, the residual effect, which I have just explained, that we know there's nothing out there to get. And yet a person who has not had a past moment, or actually several of them, uh, will still be restless. There still will be curiosity. And the word curiosity happens to have a wonderful meaning in German. In German, the word curiosity is Neugierde, which means greed for the new. <laughs> Neu is new and Gierde is greed. So it means greed for the new. And that's what curiosity <coughs> is. So it's still there. That only comes with um, a much further advanced step that we let go of all these things. But in this step, we know that there must, it must be possible because we're experiencing it in meditation. That whole inner ambience of being totally at ease, joyful, peaceful, wanting nothing. Interestingly enough, these first two steps are still a little bit exciting. And the word peacefulness is not really a proper one to use for the second step of joy. <coughs> I'll just stay with the word joy. The first one is quite exciting because it's also physically based and it's so new 
and the mind seems to be up here somewhere experiencing it all. This is all just a manner of speaking. And the Joyce is still like that. So that aspect of it is still known, although this the joy experience has a sweetness with it, which is something totally outside of our worldly experience. That kind of sweetness which arises is something that we don't probably don't even remember from childhood. It's totally outside of worldly experience. Joy is not totally outside of worldly experience. It's why they're called the fine material meditative absorptions. We know that it is how it is to be joyful. But we've never, until we get into this realm of the meditative process, been able to keep it going and to make it arise at will. And this is the beauty of it, to make it arise at will. Sit down, cross your legs, know your pathway, and there you are. It's not something that would take over and reduce one to just sitting there. Because an intelligent person that is able to do that realizes that there is still much more to be done. Again, if we do this second step, the same instructions apply, that we need to stay on it for some time if we fall off it, to go right back on it, that at the end we have to watch it being impermanent, how it, it dissolves. It's sort of like, it's a, like a trickle of water trickling away into the sand, watching its impermanence. Recognizing one's pathway, which is very important, to know each step one has taken which means that one is wide awake and alert to what one is doing. And then, what did I learn? And what one has learned, obviously, from the first one, from the uh, sensations, from the delightful sensations, is that ill will only arises in a mind that isn't happy which should give rise to the understanding that if somebody is angry at us, Nothing other than compassion is necessary. The person is obviously unhappy. Because we can see that while we are having this wonderful experience, we couldn't possibly have ill will. So the other person that's having ill will is probably having pretty awful experiences. So, compassion. Getting angry back at an angry person is absurd. <coughs> because then we have two people angry instead of one and we are polluting our environment double. So that absurdity is constantly perpetrated because we don't think about such things very much and also because the meditator's path has not been trodden properly. If we tread the meditative path properly, this will obviously be a very easy understanding. So that is the one thing we can learn from that first uh, experience of the pleasant and delightful or enchanting sensation, depending how strong they are. Some of them, sometimes they're stronger than other times. What we learn from the second one, from the joy, is that 
everything we've ever looked for in the world cannot compare to what we're carrying within. That already would be enough, wouldn't it? We can also see that there's no need to look for anything out there. It's all very nice while it happens. Perfectly all right, actually, that it happens. But it doesn't have the kind of inner reality for us that we actually carry within. So it doesn't mean that we now have to shun the world or move away from it. It's just happening. And this is one of the things which is extremely important uh, and is one of the processes in the meditation which happens. It doesn't become full equanimity immediately, but it certainly has far less of that searching for the pleasant. In other words, our energies, our mental energies, are freed for the spiritual path. Before we do, before we have this uh, uh, experience in meditation, we use our energies to get the pleasant and to remove ourselves from the unpleasant, obviously. Why not? But having had that inner joy, we know already, immediately, that removing ourselves from the unpleasant and trying to find the pleasant is totally unnecessary because we've got everything we ever wanted within. So we don't have to search out there and we don't have to run away from the unpleasant because it's bound to arise again. It just exists. And we can go to the ends of the world trying to get away from it but this thing is round that we're living on, so it doesn't matter where we go. <laughs> we're always going to be back where we started from. So this second step, the second chamber, which is that inner joy, is a very important step because it gives rise to less restlessness and worry and to an understanding that whatever it is that we've ever dreamt about, it exists and it is within us. That's a great relief because finally we know where to look. Before that, we've looked in diet, in yoga, in teachers, in partners, in children, in learning, in knowing, in releasing, in all these things which belong to the world. They don't have it. They're also looking. Nobody's got it until they find it within. And that brings a great deal of freedom to oneself because one realizes that one is actually independent of outer conditions in order to have inner joy. It's probably the most important aspect of it. The independence of outer conditions makes life so much easier. People get upset, they get worried, they get fearful, they get angry, they become abusive. Well, we don't have to buy into that. It's their problem. And if we can arouse compassion, that's the only thing we can do. They might feel it, actually, and become a little less worried, restless, fearful, abusive, angry. But that's it. That's where it's at. The rest is all fantasy. 
which doesn't mean that one can't physically help people if somebody's starving that we can't give them food naturally we can but that constant reaction to our outer conditions and then getting worried about them they're so bad and people are so bad and the world's so bad and everything's so bad what is it that we can do to make it good we can make ourselves good and then everything flows from that this is a not only the second step in the meditation it arises already in the first step but it becomes fully blown in the second one and while all five factors arise in the first one in the first step in that first uh, chamber the uh, the overriding attention at that time is on the sensation so that the joy is fully blown and a real antidote for restlessness and worry only in the second step when we let go of the sensation and put it in the background the fifth factor of meditation is one pointedness now that is a factor that stays with us all through meditation whenever there is any concentration that is one pointedness the mind becomes sharp like an arrow and centers in on the object it's one pointed it doesn't get distracted it doesn't go all over the place talking to itself <coughs> it doesn't have ideas it just stays one pointed this one pointedness remains a factor while the others disappear <coughs> after a while the one pointedness remains with us with us now even when there's any kind of meditation whether they are already the options or not the moment there's one moment of concentration there's one pointedness and that one pointedness if you become aware of it if you are not able to concentrate well yet that one pointedness be aware of it and expand it are concentrated in our feelings it's a feelings that count the mind the logical mind can explain but it's the feelings that are the experience so the experience we're having are all concerned with feelings every meditative experience we ever have or will have is feeling and then the understanding of it comes in the mind that's the explanation so we have understood experiences that's why one has to be really alert and awake during meditation to know what is the experience so that after the meditation when it's over the experience can be ascertained and explained to oneself so there's never any validity in saying i was concentrated on nothing that doesn't possible one got to be concentrated on something one's got to know what it is so the one pointedness of mind is of course also the alertness of mind it's the awake and aware mind and it is that which you will experience even when you have only momentary one pointedness so please be aware of that that momentary one pointedness recognize it cherish it develop it and cultivate it we do far too little cherishing of that which is helpful to us of that which is beneficial and wholesome in us we very often 
willing to blame ourselves, to be negative about ourselves, but we are also willing to have exaggerated ideas about ourselves instead of noticing the actual experience within and cherish those experiences which are helpful. The one-pointedness of mind counteracts sensual desire. Now we could say, I think without a shadow of a doubt, that this is our worst hindrance. We can call it greed, we can call it craving, we can call it wanting, it doesn't matter what we call it, it remains our worst hindrance. It is bound up and probably um, led by sexual desire. It's the strongest one. But it is, in the Buddha's explanation, our craving not only for our sensual pleasures, of which sexuality is one, it is also our craving to be. And that's what brings with it all the problems. Now, obviously, it appears that craving to be is necessary and is also um, quite logical. It is not counteracted by craving not to be. Because craving to be and craving not to be are exactly the same thing, the two sides of the same coin. They are concerned with me. I want to be here. I want to be happy. I want to be important. I want to be somebody. I want to be rich, famous, poor, not famous, whatever I'm looking for. I want to be mother, father, daughter, God knows what. All these ideas that we have. I want to be a lawyer, doctor, accountant. I want to be farmer, carpenter. Whatever it may be, I want to be somebody. Everything is going wrong. I don't want to be here. I'm going to commit suicide. I mean, these thoughts, uh, everybody's had them at one time in their lives, especially in our teens. Let them see how they get along without me. So um, it's exactly the same thing. It's all me. It's all me. So craving to be is certainly not counteracted by craving not to be. That's not the opposite of it. But our craving to be is bound up with our craving for sensual pleasures. And our craving for sensual pleasures is so inherent in us and so inbred and so deeply embedded that unless we're masochistically inclined and those people find their pleasures in masochism, we will always <coughs> look for our pleasures until the time when we realize what they really are. Now, the Buddha compared sensual, the desire for sensual pleasure with being in debt. Now, let's say you have a mortgage on the house. You've got to go to the bank every month and pay it off with interest. If you're very lucky, you might pay it off before you die. Now, in the desire for sensual pleasures, <coughs> there's no such luck. If we don't work at it, we're going to die with it. And that's why most people, unfortunately, find dying very difficult. Because it's not a sensual pleasure. It's the opposite of that. So all people who are 
in that profession uh, have stories to tell about the difficulty people find in dying. The debt we have is to be looked at in this way, that let's say we have had great pleasure in eating something nice. Now, maybe we have a meal which tastes very well, but how long can we eat? Twenty minutes. And then, finished. The whole <coughs> pleasure is finished. If we would like that pleasure again, we have to start all over again. If we really like this pleasure a lot, and we were to think, well, this is fine, this is great, I'm going to keep on eating. Well, the misery is uh, uh, enormous, not only physically, but also mentally. It goes like that with every sensual pleasure. It cannot be extended. It has to be momentary. Our eyes even do that for us automatically. They blink. Now, we can look at a beautiful sight, but for how long? How long can we look? We can hear a beautiful sound for longer than we can look. But for how long can we listen to the same music, the same piece of music from morning to night, day after day after day, and pay attention to it? We can't. We have to stop paying attention. And not only that, that's only the gross aspect of it. Even in eating, it might be easily understood. While we are tasting it, it's a sense pleasure. When we're chewing it and swallowing it, it's long gone. Then we have to taste it again. It's nice. Then chewing, swallowing, long gone. <coughs> Finished. So even in the same meal, it's only arising and ceasing. And even more so, that is easily understood, huh? but even more so, the sense pleasure which arises, let's say, out of the tasting, it arises and ceases even while we're doing it. Now that takes more attention, stronger attention. But everything is in a constant movement, the whole universe. The whole universe is constantly contracting and expanding, doing this, and so are we. And if we become concentrated, one-pointed, and mindful, we will notice that in meditation. And if we haven't, understood the Buddha's teaching yet, it might even appear to be fearful. If we have understood within, not just up here, but in here, the Buddha's teaching, it's a great relief. It's just moving all the time. There's nothing that we have to make consistent and permanent. It just is constantly moving. So our sense pleasures are in debt. We are in debt to them because we have to make them arise again and again, going back there and paying with interest. The interest is that when we have, let's say, we like chocolate very much. So we eat chocolate. So then we have got some chocolate. Then we need a little better chocolate mm -hmm. because the old one was already, you know, it's already a little stale. And then we need a little more of it because we're already so used to it. And though it goes with every sense pleasure, one of the fallacies, and the distortions of the Buddha's teaching, which I might mention at this time, because obviously all these distortions are even worse in the West than they are in the East, is the idea that through by going through all the sense pleasures, one's going to get rid of them. The Buddha said, this is an impossibility. We cannot have 
sense pleasures and thereby not want them anymore. On the contrary, we'll want them twice as much because our minds are habitual and not only that, we are so easily influenced that then that pleasure even and particularly if it has a religious connotation that we then think that pleasure is really something so we're going to get a little more of it. We're constantly in debt to them, to our senses. They want us to give us, they want us to look for that which is supposed to pay this debt for happiness. But they can't. They can't do it, the senses. They are impermanent and they are outwardly directed. They go outward, so they cannot bring it within. They are outwardly directed and therefore not only impermanent, but dependent. Dependent upon having that which brings pleasure available. Now, while we can spend time, money, and energy for that, we have no guarantee. And so we are sitting on the fence all the time, trying to actually get this through our senses that we're carrying within all the time if we were to let go of that. In the description of the meditative absorption, they're not being concerned with sense content. <coughs> And that's why for meditation we try to have quiet places, eyes closed and so on, and not talking. And it means that we are focusing on ourselves so that we are solitary. It doesn't mean that we have to live as hermits on the top of a mountain. We can if we wish, but most people are not very much uh, geared for that. So our one-pointedness in the meditation obviously takes away all our sense desires at that time. But also it is part of the third step, and I'll explain that right now, it is part of the third chamber, so to say, because that one-pointedness is also brings with it, if we have gone through the joy, a feeling of contentment. Now, the joy that we have experienced in the meditation, is that what we've been looking for? And so the mind feels contented. And at that point, having been able to hold on to the joy long enough to get that contentment to arise, the mind appears to drop. It doesn't really. But there's a feeling of as if it's dropping down, a settling. And that settling is concerned with being totally contented, looking for nothing. That is the first time in our lives when the senses have absolutely no application to our lives at that moment. Actually, our senses are for survival. But we have mistaken them, that they are to be used for a um, entertainment and we have mistaken them that they are supposed to be used for a, a playground therefore survival when you can't see you're blind it's much more difficult to survive as when you can see if you're deaf it's much more difficult than when you can hear all these things now people who have leprosy have no 
sense um, for uh, no awareness of the uh, sense contact so they don't know when they're burning themselves it's very difficult to, of course for them so we have all these therefore so they are our survival uh, kit so to say but we have always used our senses to uh, for a pleasure garden and that's not what they're meant for at all but now being able to sit in the utter contentment <coughs> we realize that that's what we were looking for to be contented like that and that the senses have never provided that this contentment therefore counteracts our essential desire during the meditation naturally but with the residual effect of knowing now this knowing is the insight which arises from every step of the meditative absorptions. They, these insights must arise for any intelligent mind. We cannot have such enormously different experiences in meditation without connecting them to our usual way of being and seeing the difference. It is not possible. It is often Oh, yes, it's often said that, or has even been written about, that the meditative absorptions are only pleasurable. That's nonsense. They are so fulfilling that we realize that everything else we've been trying has been just a shadow boxing, nothing else. It's been a shadow life. This one has a totally different ambience. It isn't, by any means, the freedom and liberation that, we are, that is the goal of the practice, but it's a step in that direction. So when we realize that we have come to this point of contentment, we realize something else, that the only reason we can be contented is because at this time, of meditation we were without any wishes now mind you these insights arise after we've been in the meditation if we think all these things that I've been saying we're certainly not contented we're thinking but having had the contentment afterwards there is this recollection and recapitulation first of all that too is impermanent secondly how did I get there and thirdly what did I learn and obviously this is something that the mind can see without any difficulty, that the contentment was there because there were no wishes. And that's the first and second noble truth of the Buddha's enlightenment experience. The first noble truth that there is dukkha, and the second one that it has only one cause, and that's wanting, desire, craving. If this particular experience doesn't change our life to the extent of realizing that every wish we have brings dukkha then we haven't seen it properly we could see this logically right now it doesn't make the impact strong enough and I'll talk about that again tonight because I'll talk about dukkha tonight but this particular experience gives such an impact of knowing that only wishlessness brings contentment 
that a lot of our curiosity, not all of it obviously, but a lot of the curiosity, a lot of the trying to find and to know and to experience and to meet and to have is eliminated. Peacefulness is much nearer at that time. The essential desires are compared by the Buddha to a water pond into which many different colors are thrown. It looks very enticing, but we cannot see our likeness because the water is covered with all these colors. When we have sensual desire, it looks so enticing and we don't know ourselves anymore. We are only concerned with that what we're desiring. The uh, ill will is compared to a water pond where there are huge waves and the wind is blowing and the huge waves because the anger which is arising is like waves of emotion in the mind and there's no way one can see one's likeness. When we uh, have sloth and torpor, it's compared to a water pond that's filled with mud. Can't see anything. It's all muddy. The restlessness and worry is compared to a water pond where the water is flowing away out through an opening in the uh, dam of the water pond and eventually it's all gone. We can't see anything at all because water was used in those days more than mirrors to see oneself in. And the last one, the skeptical doubt is compared to a water pond in which a lot of water plants are growing. There's so much stuff in there, in that skeptical doubt. There are so many water uh, plants growing. There's nothing to see, nothing at all, just the water plants, just the stuff. These are all the similes that the Buddha has given which help us as memory bridges to remember these hindrances. And they help us also to see that those things are within us. The five factors of the meditation, initial and sustained application, the uh, delightful enchanting sensation, the joy, and then the one-pointedness, which we can also call equanimity, but it is usually called one-pointedness. These five are the five factors which arise in the very first jhana already. Jhana is a Pali word for meditative absorption, and since it's so much shorter and so much more uh, convenient to use, I think I'll use it. (coughs) And these five counteract our five hindrances effectively, and all of them leave a residual effect so that our work and our own purification is so much easier than it would be otherwise. In fact, the Buddha never spoke about it, that it's possible to do this purification without being able to have those factors of meditation as helpmates. They, they give us that kind of grounding where it's possible to do it. So you have all the five factors of the meditation, you have the five hindrances, and the first three steps, the first three chambers, the delight, 
the enchanting sensation, the joy, and the contentment. Now, these first three are easy. Once the initial resistance has been overcome, and I've told you already what the resistance is, I'll repeat it. It's the ego not wanting to be put on the sideline. We only have the awareness of ego when we're thinking. The more we think, the more we have awareness of me. The ego doesn't want to be put aside and therefore the resistance to becoming concentrated. Once we are able and willing to let go, any mind can do it. We need quiet, we need uh, a situation where we don't do anything else in order to get started, but once one has got started, one can continue that at home. I'd like to give you a simile which describes these steps, these first three steps, the first three jhanas, but also describes the fourth one. The fourth one is much more difficult, and I haven't used it and explained it, but this simile describes all four. And it can be found in the Visuddhimagga, which means the path of purification. Magga is path, and Visuddhi means purification, which is a tome of that thickness and a very good reference work. It's not uh, something that one can read very easily. In it, it says that a person is wandering through the desert without any water and is completely parched. Now, that's someone who is trying to find happiness, joy, and peacefulness and can't see it anywhere. Trying to meditate. Nothing happening other than trying very hard. And then sees a water pond in the distance and, of course, gets very pleasurably excited. Now, that seeing that water pond in the distance and that pleasurable excitement is the very first jhana. That pleasurable excitement is, of course, in the jhana far stronger than just pleasurable excitement. It's uh, physical and also mental, but with the words we can go just that far. Now, of course, his direction is towards that water pond. So he gets nearer and nearer, and he stands at the edge. And standing at the edge, he is really joyful. There is the water. So that's the second step. Now we can see the water. So we were so uh, thirsty, and now there's water. And then this person gets down into the water pond and drinks. He's totally contented. And then he gets out of the water pond and lies down under the nearest tree in the shade. And then there is utter peace. And that's the fourth jhana. And that one, even though in this simile it's described very simply and sounds like nothing at all, I mean, just sit down and do it, that one is far more difficult. And I think at this, for this particular course, the first three will do um, from the experiences that you have had. The, uh, if, you if you have come to the first jhana, the next two steps should not be difficult. They are part and parcel of the first one. The first one contains the ingredients of 
2 and 3. It contains joy and it contains one-pointedness. All you have to do, and this is from the practical standpoint, is separate them out. The separation of those um, inner experiences which are bound up together in the first one with the overriding of the senses, the one of the uh, um, pleasant sensation needs to be sorted out and separated out so that the uh, pleasant sensation goes in the background, the joy can come in the foreground, and then the joy goes in the background, pleasant sensation is gone, joy goes in the foreground, and the uh, contentment is um, then the overriding sensation. (coughs) So all one has to do is use those things which are already there in the first one and separate them out so that one can have the joy as a second one and the contentment as a third one. I'm afraid there's no time to ask questions. <laughs>